Do you treat your life like a big, tall cabinet? I'm not the first one to use this analogy, so bear with me. Uh, so th- this big, tall cabinet of your life has many compartments, has many crevices. There is the physical compartment. So maybe at the outset of this year, you resolved that you know, this is the year that diet and exercise are going to stick. Maybe I'm going to try that diet where I only eat almonds and pomegranates, and I'm going to actually use that $200 a month Peloton subscription that I only used five times last year. <laughs> big, tall cabinet, there's the family compartment. You, maybe this year you resolved that this is the year we're going to have more quality time. We're going to take a real family vacation. Maybe we will yell at each other less and look at our phones less. There is the finances compartment. Maybe this year you resolve that you are going to cut your credit card debt in half. There is the work compartment. You opened it up and said, maybe this is the year that I resolve. I'm going to get a promotion. I'm going to get a raise. There is another compartment. There is the spiritual health compartment. Just one among the many others. Maybe you said, this is the year I'm going to pray 2.5 more times per day. I'm going to maybe start a Bible reading plan and try to get it at least through Leviticus. This year, I'm going to look at the big, tall cabinet of my life and address every single compartment. I I think if if you think like this, like many, many of us do, there's a lot of admirable things about this way of thinking. But you might be misunderstanding something crucial. God doesn't intend for us to relegate him just to one compartment of our lives. One compartment that fits neatly between our trip to Home Depot and our trip to H&R Block. No, your walk with God is not just one compartment. It's the whole cabinet. All of life is meant to be coram deo, a Latin phrase that means before the face of God. Every single aspect of it. Your finances, your work, your family, all of it is a way to worship God. All of it is spiritual. Today, we arrive at the book of Numbers. And in the story of the Bible, it's only been roughly one month since God delivered his people from slavery to Egypt. And now God prepares them to march to the promised land, a land called Canaan. And the question is, will he prepare them like all the other nations around them? Will he tell them, guys, address all these compartments of your lives, and then maybe if you have time, if you feel like it, you know, address your relationship with me too? No. God intends for him to be the whole cabinet. He intends for their lives, all of it, to be Koran Deo, to be lived before his face. Now, at the beginning of each year at West Creek, we've gone through a book of the Old Testament. And so if the Bible is our diet, then we want to have a diverse uh, diet and have a balanced one. So if, if the Bible is our menu, we don't want to only order off the New Testament section. The entire menu, the Bible says, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness. Now, when we go through Old Testament books, especially longer Old Testament books, it helps, them, it helps to cover them at a little bit faster of a pace. So that means looking at larger portions each week. So that we really, the goal is we want to keep our eyes on the forest and not get lost in the trees. That means in the book of Numbers, it's 36 chapters. We're going to cover it all in just seven weeks. Keeping our eye on the forest not getting lost in the trees. 
But our aim still, each and every one of those seven weeks, just like each and every other week, is to submit the shape and emphasis of the sermon to the shape and emphasis of the passage of the Bible we're considering. So what will that look like today? I'm glad you asked. Numbers 1 through 10, main point. God prepares his people for their journey to the promised land by centering their lives around his presence. For us, that means that success in our lives doesn't look like amassing power or amassing money or amassing pleasure. Success in our lives looks like success in their lives. It's rightly living in the presence of God. Over these chapters, we'll see the centrality of God's presence in their organization, how they were organized in their camp and as they marched, the centrality of God's presence in their priests, and the centrality of God's presence in all of their lives. So point number one, the centrality of God's presence in their organization. Uh, So if you're not there yet, turn with me to Numbers 1, verse 1. You'll find it on page 108 in the Bibles provided. Now, just to let you breathe for a minute, we are not going to read all 10 chapters that we have in front of us. I will read some parts of it, other parts I'll summarize. The bottom line, friend, if you have a chance of following along today, you will need to keep the Bible open our entire time. Or if you have a chance to check what I'm saying and make sure it aligns with the Bible, you will need to have the Bible open the entire time. So, Numbers 1, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, press pause there. This opening verse really helps, us, helps get our bearings at the very beginning of the book. It tells us where, it tells us when, it tells us what. So where are we? We are in the wilderness of Sinai. God's people have been in this place all the way since the book of Exodus, chapter 19. But it's a wilderness, right? It's no man's land. They can't settle here. They can't make their lives here. But they know this isn't their final destination. If you rewind further back in the Bible to the book of Genesis, chapter 12, God promised their forefather, Abraham, that he would give them the blessings of land and offspring. They are headed to a different place besides the wilderness. Go back to Numbers 1, verse 1. It doesn't just tell us where, it tells us when. When is all this stuff going down? It says, on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. The Bible gives us other time stamps before this. In Exodus 40, verse 17, the very end of the book, it says that it took place the first month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. You compare these two, what what it amounts to. They've been in this place, the wilderness of Sinai, for just about one month. That means that all of the instructions, all of the events that have taken place from Exodus 19 through Leviticus up to now in Numbers, all of that has taken place in just one month. Go back to Numbers 1, verse 1. Tells us where, tells us when, tells us what. What is God doing? He is speaking to Moses in the tent of meeting. This tent is also called the tabernacle in other places. This what is helps us keep our eye on the big picture. So if you want, keep your finger in numbers and flip back. Yes, you're going to do this. Flip back to the table of contents in your Bible. 
Okay, I just I want to keep our eyes on the big picture of what's happening so far. Table of contents. If you'll notice, the very first book, most of us know it, don't want to take for granted that all of us know it, is the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, God creates everything, including people, but people rebel against him. And when that happens, God unleashes curse on the earth. At the same time, God promises to reverse that curse in the earth and save his people. He says he will do that through a descendant of Adam and Eve. As Genesis continues, it becomes clear that this descendant will come from a family of Abraham. And by the end of Genesis, Abraham's family has gotten bigger, but they aren't in the place where God has promised them. By the end of Genesis, Abraham's family is in Egypt. This brings us to Exodus, second book of the Bible. In Exodus, the Egyptians enslave Abraham's family for 400 years. But this family has grown into a nation, and this nation's now called Israel. And yet, as Israel cries out to the Lord to deliver them, God does that. But God delivers them not just to deliver them. God delivers his people Israel in order to dwell with them. So as he gets them out of Egypt, they dwell in tents. So he's going to dwell in a tent with them this tent called the tabernacle. But by the end of Exodus, yes, God's presence fills this tabernacle, but Moses can't go in and meet with God. That brings us to Leviticus, the third book of the Bible. Leviticus is how the tent where God dwells becomes the tent where God meets his people. It's Leviticus is how the holy God can continue to dwell among the sinful people. And not just that in Leviticus, God shows how his presence among them will shape them to be the kind of people who are like him as they go to the promised land. That brings us to numbers in numbers right now, as we already read, God is dwelling with his people and Moses can go in to the tent of meeting. Now they are ready to set off into the wilderness and heading toward the promised land, a land called Canaan. All right, so flip back to Numbers. Chapter one, verse one. With that big picture in mind, as they set out for the promised land, what's the first thing that God tells Moses to do? Numbers one, verse two. Moses, take a census. This inspires the English name for the book, Numbers. Uh, Now, listen, I I know Steven Spielberg. But if I was writing a script for a compelling story, I don't know if I would start with a census. (laughs) Now, just hang in there. God has a purpose for this. We're going to go over all of numbers one to two. Just keep your eyes on it. We'll give an overview of what's happening here. The census spans all of chapter one. And notice in verse three, it's a census of all males 20 years old and older. So they are counting all the men who can be part of their army. That's what they're doing. So Canaan might be the promised land, but Canaan is not an unoccupied land. They will have to invade, right? Way back in Genesis, I think it was chapter 18, God says that uh, one day he would clear out the people who are living in Canaan because they lived in rebellion against them. This is the army who will clear them out. 
And so if we look at the census, the census is organized by giving the population of each different tribe of Israel. There are 12 tribes. If you're sort of new to the Bible, the 12 tribes of Israel correspond to the 12 sons of Israel. Israel's, Israel's original name was Jacob. Jacob was Abraham's grandson. But for this census, look at the very end of, almost the end of chapter one, verse 46. This grand total number of all the tribes, of all the males 20 years older who are part of their army, this total number, 603,550. This is a huge number. Especially when you consider that when Abraham's family first went off to Egypt, there were just 70 of them. And now look at how many. So here's, on the surface, this census seems very dry. It seems very dull. But this census is a tangible demonstration. This census is a tangible demonstration that God keeps his promises. He promised Abraham that his descendants would be like the stars of the sky. And here they are from 70 to 600,000. And just as God has kept his promise to Abraham about descendants, so he will keep his promise to Abraham to give them land. The census would be reassuring. Now, at the end of Numbers 1, we see one tribe, Levi, who was exempted from the census. We'll talk more about them soon. But in chapter 2, God tells them how they should organize when they set up camp, tells them how they should organize when they march. He directs three tribes to set up on the east side of the tabernacle, which is where the entrance was. This would have been in the place of prominence. Three tribes to set up camp on the south, to the west, to the north. This might be easier to see than to explain. So that's why I included a handout in your bulletin. So you can look at the charts of Israel in the camp or Israel on the march. You look at those. Once you just notice one main thing, really, what's at the center? The tabernacle, right? Tabernacle is the center of their camp, the center when they march. Now, remember, there's something unique about the tabernacle, what it was. The very center of the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was meant to symbolize God's throne. And you can actually compare this this organization to how other armies organize their camps and their marches. This, how they organize, actually mimics how the Egyptians organize their camps. You see, when the Egyptians organize, I bet you can guess who was at the very center of the camp. It was Pharaoh the Egyptian king. And here for the Israelites, who is at the center of their camp? Oh, it's not a human king. It's, it's the king, God. And look at Numbers 2, verse 2. It says, they shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. So meaning they, they should always face and remember the king who is present with them. So here we have a census and a camp. This seems like dry and dull information, but they are actually powerful demonstrations. Demonstrations that God keeps his promises, demonstrations that God is present with his people. You know, we can apply these demonstrations to ourselves. Friends, we still believe that God keeps his promises. We still believe that every promise is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. You know, Galatians 3 reminds us that Jesus is that descendant of Abraham through whom God reversed the curse. 
Jesus didn't just deliver us from bondage to Egypt. Jesus delivered us from bondage and slavery to sin. And you and I can have confidence knowing that as God kept his promise to deliver us from sin, so will he keep his promise to bring us home. In fact, we get a tangible demonstration each and every week, don't we? The body and blood of the Lord symbolized in the Lord's Supper. Every week, a tangible demonstration. God has kept his promise and he will keep his promise to bring me home. I who trust in Jesus. But the entire, think about the, uh, the other tangible demonstration that God is present with them, how they organize their camp. The entire camp of Israel was to be oriented, centered toward the king present in their midst. Well, friends, how can we apply that to ourselves? Well, I think if, if you're here and, and you're not a Christian, if you're sort of on the fence, I might ask you, if, if your life is a solar system, what is the sun in your solar system? the thing around which everything else orbits and revolves. There's something there. All of us have something there. All of us have some kind of sun. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's just you. (laughs) The Bible is clear that all of us treat anything else besides God like it is God. We exchange the giver for the gifts that he gives. But my friend, that's that's not how you and I are designed to operate. You were made to be close to your maker. And the good news is, is that he has come near to us, even though none of us have wanted anything to do with him. So Israel and the way they were organized, they were to be centered on, oriented toward the the presence of the king who was among them, centered their lives on this. Christian brother and sister, where is God especially present right now? Yes, he's, he's present in us by his spirit individually, but we often forget he's, he's present with us collectively. Matthew 18, Jesus says, when two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am among them. First Corinthians three, Paul says, you are the uh, temple of the Holy Spirit. And that you, we we don't get it because we're from the north. It's actually y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's us collectively. God is especially present, not just with us individually, but with us corporately. When we are here, I know it doesn't really feel like that a lot of times, but the gathering of Christ's people is where God is especially present right now. So what if we take what's instructed to the Israelites for ourselves? What if we organize our entire lives to center on the place where God is present? I hear I hear already in my head, well, you know, we, we do have soccer. I have shopping to do. I have a Browns game to watch. I have traveling. I have obligations. You know, I, I could just, you know, watch the sermon online later on. Listen, I, I'm not saying that you can't do anything else besides go to church or that life can't happen. But I am asking you to remember, where is God especially present right now? My friend, it's the local church. 
So would you join me to plead with God to give me a longing to be in this place. Give me a longing to be around the people where you are present. Give me a longing to organize my life in such a way that prioritizes the gathering of your people. And give me a longing to discipline myself when I don't feel like doing it. Give me a longing to sing and mean it. Oh, how good it is when the family of God dwells together in spirit, in faith and unity where the bonds of peace, of acceptance and love are the fruits of his presence here among us. God prepares his people. He prepares his people to set off for the promised land by centering them around his presence. He does that by how he organizes them. He does that through their priests. This is point number two. So you might have to turn the page. Follow along with me as I read Numbers chapter three, verses five to 13. Numbers three, Verses 5 to 13. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, and keep guard over the people of Israel, as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall gather their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel, instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine. For all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine, I and the Lord. This section summarizes the three duties or descriptions of Levites. They guard, they minister, and they substitute. They guard, they minister, and they substitute. Let's talk about guarding. The Levites needed to guard the tabernacle. They needed to guard the place where God is present. Why? What gets me thinking of uh, an episode of Seinfeld, actually, the the old sitcom. Uh, This episode takes place mainly at a movie theater, and everything is fine. Uh, Jerry and Kramer are going to sit down for their movie, and everything is fine until the goofy Kramer sits in the seat directly next to straight-laced Jerry. Jerry just presses time out. He says, Kramer, hold on. What about the buffer zone? There needs to be a seat between you and me. What, what, if, if we were at my house, in my apartment, sitting on my couch, would you sit directly next to me? No, you wouldn't. You want a buffer zone. I don't want to share an armrest with you. I don't want to smell your breath throughout the movie. <laughs> the Levites are Israel's buffer zone. It's not that God wants to keep his people at a distance. It's that God wants to protect his people from his holiness. The Levites guard the people from waltzing casually into God's presence. This is something that has happened already with Aaron, the high priest's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They waltz casually into God's presence and the consequences were catastrophic. So the Levites guard the place where God is present. They also minister or serve the place where God is present. The rest of chapter 3 on into chapter 4 will describe more what it looks like. 
Uh, there are three divisions of the Levites. I think this might be included in another one of your charts on your handout. There are the sons of Kohath, Gershon, and Merari. They each service various parts of the tabernacle. So they guard, they minister, and there's one last duty or description from Numbers 3, that second paragraph we read, verses 11 to 13. Here we're told the Levites aren't just guards, they aren't just ministers, they are substitutes. These verses point back to the last plague in Egypt, the death of the firstborn son in every household. The only way God's judgment could pass over a house is if there was a substitute for the firstborn son. And that substitute was the Passover lamb. And ever since then, God has set aside every firstborn son in Israel for himself. But the Levites went in their place. The Levites were the substitutes. So I want you to think about all these positions the Levites had. Guards, servants, substitutes. And I, and I can't help but think of the need for priests and the need for Levites, how it, how it goes against the storyline that, that most of us operate by. Most of us operate on a storyline that says, that thinks too high of ourselves and too low of God so that we are basically on the same page, the same plane. We bring God down to our standard. So if, if you think this way, then your conclusion is going to be that right now and at the end of my life when I stand before God, I can just waltz casually into his presence. I don't need to fear being cast out. I have plenty of confidence that I will be accepted. And that's, that's the storyline that you and I operate on by default. But there is another storyline. The storyline goes way back to Genesis chapter 2, where these same priestly duties of guarding and serving were actually given to Adam. In the Garden of Eden, this is the first place where God was present, and God told Adam, guard and keep this place. And Adam failed. The serpent infiltrated the garden, the place where God was present, and Adam and Eve were cast out of God's presence. So here we have a tabernacle, like another Garden of Eden, and the Levites are given Adam's job, guard and serve the place where God is present. And the Levites will fail. They will be insufficient for this task. And a couple chapters later, in Numbers 8, we get little hints of it. Even the Levites have sin that they need to make sacrifices for. Even the Levites are, are subject to death because of their sin. But the storyline continues. That God has provided a better Adam. God has provided a better Levite. God has provided a better priest. It's his son, Jesus. His son is the one who came not to be served, but to serve. The one who lived as the sinless substitute for sinners going in their place. And yet Jesus was cast out of God's presence on the cross, taking the judgment you and I deserve. But death could not hold Jesus. And now he is a priest forever. This storyline says that the only way you can stand in the presence of God with no buffer zone, with no fear of being cast out, and with the joy of being accepted, the only way is if someone else is cast out in your place. And there is no one else who is qualified and who has done that besides Jesus. You trust him. But friends, the, the storyline isn't over. 
We read it earlier, how the storyline continues from 1 Peter 2. How are those who trust in Jesus described in that chapter? We're called something very peculiar. We are called a kingdom of priests. I bet you never thought about that, especially in the area we are considering. You know, you don't wear those fancy collars. I can't even remember what they're called. But Christian, those who trust in Jesus, you're a priest. You are a priest. I mean, you, I mean, that means you are charged to guard and to serve the place where God is especially present. And let me ask you again, where is God especially present? Here, the local church. You are charged to guard and serve the local church. Now, now, what does that mean? Well, how do we do that? Does that mean we dress up like Paul Blart Mall Cop every week and that's what we do? No, we thank our security team. Thank you guys. We guard and serve the place where God is present in at least two ways. One, together, together, we ensure that the gospel of Jesus Christ is rightly preached at this church. Together, we do that. God's provision in the gospel of Jesus in our place is the only way people can draw near to God's presence and not be cast out. Friends, we are like the buffer zone of the world, holding up the gospel and saying, come near to the Lord only through his son. What does it mean for us to guard and serve the place where God is present? Well, I think it means another thing. Number two, we ensure that the place where God is present is pure. We ensure as best as we can that the place where God is present is pure. So the actions of baptism and the Lord's Supper, church membership, when necessary, church discipline, these are actually all actions of guarding and serving the place where God is present. These are actions through which we bring in or see someone out of the church. Through these actions, we communicate. These are the ones, as best as we could tell, who trust in Christ and have been brought into the presence of God. And when we do that well, we keep the place where God is present pure. Friends, you and I are priests. And I bet, I bet if you're thinking right, this should change how you show up to church every week. This should change how you come to church. Yes, please, friend, come to church to be encouraged. You should. But friend, when you come to church, Christian, you are actually on the job. You know, that we get this miscommunication just because we're in such a consumeristic culture that all the ministry that happens happens just from up here. The main ministry among us is out there. Is the people where the Lord is present. So I tell this to members who are coming into the church this might be a reminder to, to us all. I remind, us, I remind them of our priestly duty to guard and serve the, the people where God are present. I say, friend, by joining this church, you will become jointly responsible for whether or not this congregation continues to faithfully proclaim the gospel. That means you'll become jointly responsible both for what this church teaches as well as whether or not its members' lives remain faithful. It will be so easy to be anonymous and passive in this work. We need those who jump in and do the hard but rewarding work of studying the gospel, building relationships, and making disciples. We need people who guard and serve the place where God is present. God prepares his people to set off for the promised land. He does that by centering them around his presence. We see that in the centrality of God's presence and how he organizes them. We see the centrality of God's presence in their priests. 
Last point three, we see the centrality of God's presence in all of their lives. All of their lives. So look at Numbers. We're just going to give an overview of chapters five and six, then on into seven and eight. Chapter five, I'm helped by one commentator who organizes this chapter. Chapter five, one to four, God calls for holiness in the camp. Look at chapter five, verse three. God says there should be nothing in this place that defiles it, nothing unclean. Now, to be unclean wasn't necessarily to be sinful. It was to be unfit for God's presence. That didn't mean you always did something sinful, but it always meant you came into contact with the effects of sin. Chapter five, verses five to 10, God calls for holiness, holiness in all of their relationships. The entire Bible is clear that we should seek to reflect the peace that we have with God to the peace we have with our fellow man. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Chapter five, verses 11 to 31, God calls for holiness. He calls for holiness in marriage. Now, if you read this section in detail, this will sound very strange, Um, but it comes within the context of the Bible treating marriage with the utmost importance. It's that marriage is meant to reflect our relationship with God. So these instructions deal with when a man suspects his wife of adultery. We should remember that these instructions come to people who live in a different time, place, and a different covenant with God. We should remember that God has already said that adultery is wrong for both men and women. And we should remember that in a society that was probably dominated by men, instructions like these would put a stop on that. This would protect women from just mob justice and not and keep due process for them. So overview of chapters five and six, God's calling for holiness, holiness in the camp, holiness in their relationships, holiness in marriage. Chapter six, one to 12, he calls for holiness in their service. This section discusses the Nazarite vow. Now, Nazarite means one who is separated. Now, a Nazarite vow is normally a short-term service where you are specially devoted to the Lord. So if if you know your Bibles, uh, you know guys like Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist were Nazarites. Nazarites gave up their rights and possessions so that they can give themselves entirely to the Lord. And they didn't have to do this. So I think of the Nazarite vow, it functions like this. I bet you have people in your life whose walk with the Lord challenges you, who, who you look at and say, oh my goodness, I could never be as holy as they are. They spur me on and challenge me. That's what the Nazarites were meant to do for all of Israel. So holiness in the camp, in relationships, in marriage, in service, this cabinet analogy is coming back to life, isn't it? Since they have been rescued by God, since they belong to God, since God is with them, all of their lives should revolve around him. And this section culminates with chapter 6, verses 22 to 27. It's one of the most famous parts of all of the book of Numbers. You've probably heard it before. And but we, when we remember what's come before it, this prayer has more weight. God wants his people to be holy so he can do this to his people, so he can bless them and keep them, so he can make his face shine upon them and be gracious to them, so he can give them peace and put his name upon them. He wants his people to be holy so he can bless them. 
but there's a tension. Can you and I be holy and pure on our own? No. The only way that God can be present with us and bless us is if God gives grace and forgiveness. And that's, so if Numbers 5 to 6 focuses on the call to holiness, Numbers 7 to 8 focus on the way to holiness. The people will need God's provision. The people will need sacrifice to atone for their sin. The people will need cleansing in order to live holy and pure lives in the presence of God. And a high point of these chapters is number seven, verse 89. It says, when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Testimony from between the two cherubim. And it spoke to him. Oh, here is such an intimate relationship with God who speaks, who we can be near. Friend, if you want a relationship like God, like this, then you need to realize your guilt. You need to receive the cleansing and forgiveness that comes through the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to live your life in conformity with God's call to holiness. So here we are, numbers five through eight. Just take a step back. Remember what God is doing at the beginning of numbers. What is he doing? He's preparing his people to march to the promised land. He's preparing an army, right? So in these chapters, wouldn't you expect God to talk about battle plans and strategy? Wouldn't you expect God to talk about weapons and equipment? Wouldn't you expect God to talk about regiments and generals and soldiers? I don't see any of that here. Not that those things don't matter, but he doesn't talk about those things. And it, and it gets me thinking. You know, sometimes when I meet with uh, members of the church individually, uh, I'll, I'll ask a very brave question. I'll, I'll ask him or her, you know, if, if you were me, what would you do differently at the church? Then I sort of like brace for impact. <laughs> there are so many steps and actions you can take for planning and organizing a church. You could talk about all the ways and strategies we can get as many people here as possible. You could talk about programs and projects. You could talk about music and atmosphere. You could talk about merchandise and marketing campaigns. You can talk about style and vibes. You can do all those things and you actually might get the successful church that you want. But will God be there? We get so lost in activity and planning and what about the one we're here for anyway? And you could do all of this. And, and then what kind of people would you have produced in this type of church? You know, the Israelites could have had all the weapons, all the generals, all the battle plans. They could have even got the outcome that they wanted, get that land. And then once they had settled there, what kind of people would they have actually been? They would have been just like the other nations of the world, wouldn't they? You know, friend, God defines success differently than the world defines success. Success for them is the same as success for us. It's not dynamic, charismatic leadership. It's not impressive metrics. Success is living all of our lives holy and joyful in the presence of God. 
while these preparation chapters come to a close with more reminders that they need to depend on the king who is present with them. So in chapter nine, they celebrate the first Passover since the original Passover. The same God who has delivered them in the past is with them in the present and will deliver them in the future. As chapter nine closes, God tells them how they will move about in the wilderness. It won't be by their design. It will be at his command. Every step they take was to be in obedience to the command of the one who is present with them. At the beginning of chapter 10, when they are on the move, they will sound the alarm with trumpets. These trumpets were meant to be reminders that they depend on the Lord. Reminders of what is most crucial to your victory, what is most fundamental to your identity, that the Lord is your God. He is the one who is with you. So God is preparing his people. My friend, what is God preparing you for? I don't know, we can give a thousand different answers, but whoever's in this room, maybe God is preparing you to uh, profess faith in Christ for the first time. If that is you, if, you, if you do not trust this better priest, if you are coming to God expecting to be fully accepted without anyone standing in your place, my friend, come talk to me, come talk to someone else near you about what it means to have faith and follow Jesus. And for those who do, what is God preparing you for? It could be an answer in a number of different ways. But I know one, one answer to it. He tells us in his word, God is preparing you, believer in Jesus, to stand blameless and holy in his presence. That's what he is preparing you for. And you and I get to lean into that purpose right now because you and I abide in Jesus, the one who is present with us. You and I follow him according to his word and are strengthened by his spirit as we are in the wilderness heading toward the promised land. And would you join me to pray? Lord Jesus, oh, how grace, uh, oh, oh, how great a debtor to grace daily we are constrained to be. We are prone to wander from you, Lord. Come and seek us who are strangers to you. Interpose your precious blood and help us follow you on our way home. Lord, continue to keep your promise and prepare us. Help us, God, to uh, give us strength to organize our lives around the place where you are present. Help us guard and serve this place. And Lord, we pray that the place where you are present expands to include more people. Lord, we need you. We ourselves are insufficient. So be our help and be our strength. In Jesus' name, amen.